0: No one will be able to understand. It turned out to be one of the most valuable foundations for those young people. Some of the young men now are grown up and take up this subject of the tabernacle themselves, and it has been foundation truth. This is what it is. Up on the top we have put uh, that little sign which says, The tabernacle reminds us of Christ. Years ago, I wondered how I could summarize uh, this whole story, and I put it this way. It is showing us the holiness of God, and it is showing us the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, those two things. And I trust now that as we take up this subject, that these prime, that prime purpose will be ever before us. So you dear young boys and girls that are here, this is for you. And if you uh, uh, listen, the word of God says, the entrance of thy words giveth light. If you let the word of God enter into your heart now, this will be something that you will, if the Lord leaves you, will never forget. Uh, Because I'm talking about it, but because of this grand purpose that God has. Now let's turn to the book of Exodus. I might also say that we studied this tabernacle Uh, in the Gospel Tent in Nova Scotia for one summer, every afternoon about 25 or so of the young people, and they took details of it, every last detail, and then during that winter two of the boys translated all the the uh, scales from cubits into inches and feet. And they did it so completely that when we started the next summer, Why We had everything all there and copies of it so that everyone knew the relative uh, scale that we were going to work on. So they started then that following summer and they made the two models completely with a few little exceptions which I made. The rest of it is all made by the boys and girls three summers every afternoon. Uh, During July and August, and it took them three years, as I said, to, to make it. Now this is just one of the models we're going, this afternoon, we will start on the large one. But this is three inches, three eighths of an inch to the cubit. Three eighths of an inch to the cubit. The other one is much larger. And it is one inch to the cubit, and we'll see all many more details. But I just want to give you the general outline, somewhat as we have in the illustration of the whole camp. Vast camp that it was, 604,000 approximately men. And if each man had a wife and three children, there would be three million people here surrounding this vast, uh, this one central building. One center. I'm going to be emphasizing, beloved ones, one. God always and ever has only one. Never had two places at the same time to worship him. One. And God always reduces everything to one. Now, we'll look in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9. Notice this carefully. According to all that I, that is the Lord speaking, show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Verse 45, 40. And look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the mount. Next chapter, verse 30, 26, 30. And thou shalt rear up the tabernacle according to the fashion thereof which was showed thee in the mount. Chapter 39, summary of it. Verse 32, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation was finished, and the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so did they. Now there we see that there was no choice given them. There was no variance. There was no opinion to be introduced. There was no saying, well, I think it'll be a little bit better if we do it this way. No such tolerance. And the word of God from beginning to end is such, it's such. Paul said to Timothy in First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, see that they teach no other doctrine. Now, I didn't always think along these lines. But as the years went on in my life, I saw that my opinion or my wanting to adjust scripture to what it's, how it suited me was in, it was just leading me on into disaster in my Christian life. And I have learned by God's grace that it is when you and I are willing to bow to the absolute authority of God's Word in obedience without reason or compromise or thinking, you and I are going to be blessed. Just like nature, it's all perfectly in order. You can't take a bird out of its square mile uh, of territory without throw, throwing out the balance of nature. Nor can you and I introduce into our thoughts as to how you and I are going to approach God and worship Him on our own and our own. Thoughts, six hundred and fifty groups of Christians in the world today, all it might be that they 're all the lords, probably they, well, they are, if they belong to the Lord, and yet here we are in a world of utter confusion. Oh beloved ones, I just trust that as we meditate on the tabernacle that we 're going to see that it must be according to the pattern that has been shown us shown us. I emphasize that. I trust you'd accept that. Now, back to chapter 25, verse 8. And let them make me, this is the Lord speaking again, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's all we need to read now. Here's the whole purpose of it. God's purpose. God's purpose. Not a place where they could come and dwell, but a place where God... Could be surrounded by his people. Let them make me a sanctuary. The purpose was all in God's heart. And this is why you and I have been saved. That we would be worshipers of God. John's gospel tells us that God seeketh such to worship him. He's not looking for worship, but he's looking for worshipers. And oh, beloved ones, I just trust now that our hearts are going to be warm toward Christ. That he is going to be seen before us as the object. And then what? Oh, to see what that blessed one has done for God. That's what he came to this earth for. He didn't come primarily to die for our sins. He came to this earth to die for God, to live for God's glory. And he finished that work, John. 17 and 4 tells us that, finished the work which thou gavest me to do, I have glorified thy name on the earth. That's what the Lord Jesus came to earth to do. And God has found one object now to fill and to satisfy his heart. One man, one man, not us. God has found Christ. a One perfect man who has lived on this earth For God's glory, and now God has answered and taken that blessed one out of the grave, gave him life again, and raised him up to glory. We know that the Lord Jesus, as God, he had the power to lay his life down and to take it. But all this was for God's glory. In heaven now there's one man, one man, that fills only one man in heaven, nobody else but him, but he. And there in the glory is that one object that fills God's heart forever. Oh, what is that but the very object to fill and to satisfy your heart and mine? I trust that the tabernacle will do just this. Now, God, in the 25th and 26th and 27th chapters of Exodus, gave instruction, only instruction as to how to build this tabernacle. And then he introduced the priesthood gave the orders on how uh, Aaron and his uh, sons were to conduct themselves, and then the, in the thirty fifth chapter, the work starts. Now the instruction order is different than the building order, and we're going to take the liberty with I trust suitably that uh, we will you follow the building order. In other words, we'll start from the outside. And we will work in, inward. Now, I trust you all can see this model uh, from from the back. And it is a large court, 100 cubits long or 150 feet long, 75 feet or 50 cubits wide. And it was made out of linen, just white linen. Up behind me here you see what we call the keys. Now these are important keys that go through the scripture, help us to to understand in the book of the Revelation we have many keys, but we learn the meaning of the keys from other parts of scripture, particularly the tabernacle. So we look at this first one, linen, spotless purity of Christ. Now let's turn to Farther on in the next chapter, uh, the 27th chapter, verse 9. And thou shalt make the court, that's that large outside court, of the tabernacle, for the south side southward there shall be hangings for the court of fine twined linen of an hundred cubits long for one side. And the twenty pillars, There were the 20 pillars down the side. The boys will be counting them, and they'll find 21. And we struggled over a lot of details such as that. It says that there are 10 across the front. We have 11. And we didn't know what was the explanation of it because we knew that uh, very often illustrations of the tabernacle show this gate with three here, and that would make 10, but that wasn't correct. So we came to the conclusion, and it was borne out by the scripture. You start with one here, and you go to 20, and you end with that one. You start with this, and you go for 10, and you end there. You start 20 here, and you end here, and you start with 10 here, and you end there. These are the things that to the minds of men and women and boys and girls, the scriptures are a little bit feeble sometimes, and, you know, they seem so contradictory and, well, it's written long ago. No such thing. The word of God is in perfection from Genesis to Revelation. David could say in the 119th Psalm, 130, I think it is, or 128, I consider all thy law about all things to be right. Nothing wrong with the word of God when we approach it with our intellect, we're going to find things that appear like inconsistencies. So there were those pillars. Verse 10, tell us about, tell us, oh, we'll read 10. And the 20 pillars thereof and their 20 sockets shall be of brass. We'll remember brass, we'll come to it in a little more detail, but we'll remember that every one of those pillars was standing on brass in the sand. The hooks of the pillars, they are the hooks on the top, you can, at, when we stop in the interval, you can look at the silver uh, hooks that they were, that the girls made with, with pins, and there are they, they are across the top. The silver didn't touch the sand in this case, but the brass did. Verse 12, and for the breadth of the court on the west side shall be hangings Of 50 cubits, this was the west side, the back, shall be hangings of 50 cubits, their pillars 10 and their sockets 10. Then, the that's all we need to read for for a moment. The linen, five cubits high, about as high as I can reach you. You can always remember, uh, I think, that about seven and a half feet high. No one could see over it, and it was the only thing that anyone would be able to see if they looked at the tabernacle, if they could see it at all, because there was a great big space here. No one was allowed to come close to it. But if they could see it, all they would see was the white linen. As we mentioned there, a picture of the spotless purity of Christ. I like to compare this to the person of the Lord Jesus. When he was here, I'm sure when I say this to you mothers, you smile. If you had a perfect day, a boy, I think you might be able to recognize him as perfect. I see some smiles coming on the mother's faces. The Lord Jesus was such. He was a perfect, sinless boy. He grew up to be a perfect, sinless man. That's all the world saw of him. It tells us in John's Gospel that even his own brethren did not believe on him. But they saw, nevertheless, a perfect man. That's all this tabernacle is. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as seen as a perfect man. But across the front... There, as you can see from the front, there was a wide gate. Look at verse 14. The hangings of one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits. That was on this side. One side, 15, three of these panels. These were all uh, square panels, five by five, incidentally. And there were three, 15, Fifteen, and that would take thirty away from fifty, you have twenty. And that is the width of the gate. Verse eighteen. And for the gate of the court shall be in hanging of twenty cubits. Now, you see, it all fits in when we uh, don't bring our own thoughts to the scriptures, but listen to what it says. Of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen wrought with needlework and their pillars shall be four, and their sockets four. All the pillars round about the court shall be filleted with silver, their hook shall be of silver, and their sockets of brass, and so on. Now, just one little point. The tabernacle always looked toward the east. Whenever it was set up, it was always looking toward the sunrise. You and I as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ were looking toward the east, the sunrise. This is our night, our day is coming. There's somebody here this morning that doesn't know the Lord is your Savior. You're looking toward the west. You're looking toward a sunset and you will never see a sunrise. Always looking toward the east. It was a gate of different, Uh, Not consistency, but it had something on it that was different. Three different colors, blue, purple, and scarlet. Thirty times or so those colors are repeated in the scriptures. Always blue, purple, scarlet. On the keys, we look at these three colors. The blue, heavenly color. Sometimes we look up into the sky, we see a panoply of blue covering the whole world reminding us of the Lord Jesus Christ, that man from heaven, blue, blue. Lovely color, isn't it? Not a depressing color, it is an enthusiastic color, blue. A heavenly man, the heavenly character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the purple, the royalty of Christ. He was the son of a direct descendant, of King David. He had royalty by right. Joseph was in that direct line and so passed on in the lineage to the Lord Jesus. What did they do to him? They covered him with a robe of purple in mockery. But, oh beloved ones, the day is going to come when that blessed one will come forth in that robe of purple and yet in vengeance first. He's going to wear that. We'll come to the characters and we have little f- figures, the models of, uh, of Aaron, which we will show you later on. And then the scarlet, the earthly glory of Christ. He didn't have that here. He let it, set aside his glory when he was here, as it were, glory with, that he had with the Father. He's going to come and he's going to display that too. So here would be like his, glo- his divine character. And here would be his earthly character as a man and the shedding of his precious blood, that scarlet, though your sins be as scarlet and so on. Why the mixture of the blue and the scarlet makes the purple. And that is how the Lord Jesus has won his glory as a man, as a man. The glory, 17th of John, that thou hast given me, I have given you. I trust that we are entering a little bit now into the glorious position that we have as children of God. Those colors were woven into the gate. That is like the gate of salvation or the gate of grace. It stood there, not open every one of these gates and doors that we will be viewing had to be pushed through those that take the kingdom are going to take them it by force we're not uh, it's not like a, a a supermarket when you come there the door opens up for the magic eye no we have to push through that gate we have to have sincerity we have to have diligence if we're going to grow in our souls now we will go on into the next object. I think we'll stop now for a few minutes. Our time is up. And uh, I'll get out the other model piece to show it so that you can see it in more detail. I urge you to walk around now for about 10 minutes and then we will go on for a little while. So back to Exodus. We're going to follow a different order, as I mentioned. Chapter 27, And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, or acacia wood, five cubits long, that often repeated measurement, and five cubits broad, the altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits, four and a half feet. Uh, These two models of Aaron... Are the, all everything is the same model uh, ratio. These figures are would be a person about my height, and so therefore there is Aaron standing beside the brazen altar, just about up to up to his shoulders, four and a half feet high. Verse two, and thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, that is of brass, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make his pans, and so on. Verse 4. And thou shalt make for it a great of network of brass, and upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even in the midst of the altar. And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with board shalt thou make it, as it was showed thee, in the mount, so shall they make it. Now, there was the brazen altar, large. I suppose it would be about that width to the wall and square. Made out of wood, covered with brass. The wood we have written up on the the chart uh, in the center here at the bottom. Wood, a picture of humanity. Each one of us is a human being, whether it's the Lord or whether it is us. Sometimes it's the Lord uh, that is portrayed in type. Sometimes it is us, we who are the Lord's. The wood, as I said, is a picture of the Lord Jesus who came from heaven, God, but became a man. In the case of Abraham and Isaac going up to that mountain, uh, he put Abraham put the wood on the sun. Isaac carried the wood. And so it's a picture of the Lord Jesus in the Godhead, the one who became a human being. Apart from sin, he was just like an ordinary man. No one would recognize any difference when they would see him. There would be no beauty that would be desire him. And so that was a picture of the, of the brazen altar as the place where the Lord Jesus died on the cross for God's glory and our blessing. But we read that it was covered with brass, and brass is very interesting of the three metals, the silver, the gold, and the brass. It was a picture of The fact that it can endure the fire. And if you had three lumps of silver, gold, and, and uh, copper, as the proper word is, pure, brass is, is an alloy, but copper, as the word properly is, is able to endure. And if the fire in our supposed uh, stove was heated up, first the silver would go, then the gold, And lastly, there would be the brass still able to endure the heat. And so it's a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who was able to endure the judgment of God. The fire. This fire never went out. The first time the wood was laid on it in order, fire came out of heaven and lit it. And it tells us in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 8 or so around that, that the fire never went out. It was burning all the time. Now, these are types. No doubt when they were moving this tabernacle, the fire was put out. But when it's saying the fire never went out, it is saying that when it is a question of approach to God, all was available. So, you notice that it mentioned about the great work in the midst of the brazen altar. It was in the midst. In the middle, halfway down. You also notice that it said that there were four rings on the four corners. Whenever you get four in the scriptures, it is going out in all directions. Some A message going out north, east, west, south. Universal truth. Four. Four rings. The rings bring before us unending love. You noticed also that it said that the great was connected to the rings. Oh, how beautiful to realize that God's love in Christ, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross, the bearing of that judgment of God, he did that because of love. Not love to you and to me first, but love to God. The Hebrew servant in the 21st chapter uh, of Exodus tells us that when he was free to go out after seven years of labor, if he desired to stay, it says, he, he would not go free. I love my, not my wife first, my master, my wife, my children. Very important, beloved ones, For you and for me to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ came first for God's glory. I know evangelical teaching, or at least we hear we're exposed so much these days to a watered down gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ came first to die for us. When we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we learn the truth that God's purposes first were before the Lord Jesus, and he died for God. It was love to his father that brought him here, that caused him to endure the judgment. He could say, as he went into the garden of Gethsemane, The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? That was the cup that he drank. We don't drink that cup. That was the cup of judgment, and he drank that to the bitter dregs from his father. He was never forsaken of his father, but he was forsaken of God on the cross. And so these pictures that we see bring this constantly before us if we have an eye to see it. The next thing is that it had staves. It was born, never not touched, but born by the Levites. Not the priests, but the Levites as they journeyed through the wilderness. Telling us today that you and I are passing through this world and that we need to approach to God. Now, we'll be having the bigger model this afternoon and we'll see it a little more plainly. But it was outside or just inside the gate here. And when a person, I want to emphasize this, when a person had committed a sin of ignorance, not a willful sin. There were no sacrifices in the tabernacle for willful sin. And God is, ab- is abhorrent of that very thought that you and I would willingly sin. God has made every provision for you and for me not to sin. Not to that is what God would assume because of every provision that he has made. Let me quote you the verse, first chapter of Second Peter, verse 3. It says, Whereby are given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Life and godliness. You dear young ones that are here uh, this morning, uh, sometimes some of these things that I may be saying, are a little bit of a change from what you may have heard. I'm not saying that you don't teach this in your assembly. But uh, we are so exposed, beloved ones, to uh, modern uh, thoughts that are expressed that are so foreign to God's own purposes. And so it's so important for us to realize God's side of it always, always. Seeing God's side first. Give me an example of it. Leviticus chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 are the offerings such as were carried out in the tabernacle. The first one was the the burnt offering. Now, this is paramount for you and for me to grasp this because this is seeing the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ from God's standpoint. Why the Lord Jesus, uh, what he did... Why, he died for God. And that's why the burnt offering is first. That's why we see the blue first. This is why we learn to, uh, to hear what God says of the cross. God's glory was established on the cross. Never was God more glorified when the Lord Jesus Christ laid de- dead on the cross. Now you say, well, what about us? Oh, the sin offering and the trespass offering, they are four chapters later, in fourth and fifth chapter of Leviticus, and I just emphasize these things to put them in their proper order. So, the brazen altar was for sins of ignorance, and when an Israelite had committed a sin, he would... Could never come without a sacrifice. As I mentioned before, three times in numbers it says, The stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. There is no room, there is no possibility of my approaching God in my old nature. And let me add this too. In the assembly is gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ If I let that old life, that old nature, start to activate my thinking, I'm going to be missing the mind of the Lord. I'm going to be thinking thoughts that are not according to the word of God. And I should have put it first, I won't be living in the channel of God's thoughts and for his glory. So important, beloved ones, for us to to realize these things the man brought his sacrifice if he had committed an offense in ignorance uh, am i making that plain and that clear any questions on that point if you'd like to ask about that these were not deliberate sins 6th chapter of hebrews 10th chapter of hebrews 5th chapter of 1st peter it brings before us deliberate sins And they were not in connection with a saved person at all. They are all connected with unsaved people. Deliberate sins. It is an offense against God to sin. And sin is a dreadfully costly thing, as we all know. Sin has brought this whole fair creation into ruin. Sin will bring unhappiness into your life, you dear boys and girls, and I also, When I allow something in my life that is an offense against God or do what I want to do, it's a sin. That's what sin is. It's doing my own will. And so these are offenses to God. But if a person inadvertently or in ignorance did something wrong and it was brought to their attention, they would bring a sacrifice. They would come across this forbidden area and through this gate of grace that we have been speaking about, and the first object that they would meet inside there was that brazen altar. Here it is on the little model. You saw that it is surrounded by blood. The first thing that the man did when it was an offense, a sin offering, was to put his hand on the head of that little innocent animal, confess the sin that he had committed to the priest, and then the man himself, not the priest, would kill that little animal. The priest, the first thing that the priest does, good to remember these things, is to take the blood. And the priest then brought that blood and he sprinkled it around the base of the altar. There is an altar here. And then the animal was cut up, put in here into the fire. And the man would stand there and he would see that smoke going up to heaven telling him that that little animal had taken his place. He had transferred his sin onto the little sinless animal. And the animal is dead, and the smoke is the evidence that God was accepting him. It was accepted for him. Or I should say the sacrifice was accepted. We'll come to the the acceptance of the man in a few moments. Horns. We saw that there were horns. A horn is... On an animal is the strongest place uh, of his intelligence and close to his, his, his will and his strength combined. They're close in the horns. Oh, what a lesson this is to you and to me. To realize that the blessed Lord Jesus on that cross of Calvary, he surrendered his will to his Father. He surrendered his power to God. He laid down. He could say, I have power to lay it uh, take it uh, lay it down and take it, it again he had power, but on the cross he gave body soul and spirit to god and there he died he endured that judgment that you and I could never endure if we if we, speaking in this way if a person dies and goes to hell, eternity will never pay for that person's sins just think of The sins of each one of us here. Awful to say this. But just to think of those sins being borne by the Lord Jesus in one, two, three hours on the cross. Satisfying God. Enduring. Enduring. Endured the testing. He could say it's finished. He bore that judgment. Our sins deserved to, to... Satisfy God, and so that God's complacency could be re in man. The man would stand, no doubt, beside the brazen altar, and when the smoke was ascended up to heaven, out he would go. The next day he might commit an offence against God, back again. Not so with you and me. It tells us uh, in the ninth or tenth chapters of Hebrew, Hebrews, that this. Was a shadow only of the anti-type. It was only a shadow. It, it, it doesn't fulfill the type exactly. Only the Lord Jesus Christ could do it. So they brought their sacrifices back and forth many times, no doubt. <coughs> I have to be careful in saying that because they, they didn't really carry these things out very long. But what I am trying to put over is that it was repeating. Whereas now when we come to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down at the right hand of God. The Lord Jesus, in contrast to all this repetitive sacrificing, one sacrifice, and I came through that gate of grace once, Fresh in my memory, though it's 57 years ago, one sacrifice, once save, save forever. I never went through that, back through that gate in type again. Neither does any one of us. We are saved forever and now we're going to come to a metamorphosis, if we might say. A change that is going to take place. That man went out the door, we never. But when he would be standing there, when I would be standing beside the cross of the Lord Jesus and accept him as my Savior, oh, a tremendous change. I find myself on the other side of that altar and I find myself now a priest. Every one of us here who knows the Lord Jesus as our Savior, we are a priest before God. Let's turn to First Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. Ye also as lively or living stones. These were all dead things. The temple that followed in the days of Solomon, it was made of stone and ivory and gold and so on. They were dead things. <clears throat> Here you and I now, though we were dead stones, we are living stones now. That's one. First Peter two five. Ye also... As living stones are built up, that's the passive tense, it doesn't say build ourselves up, are built up. A spiritual house, this was a physical house. We're built now into a spiritual house, second thing. Third thing, an holy priesthood. There was a failing priest, Aaron wearing those white garments, previously wearing those garments of glorious glory and beauty. He was a failing man. The first act was to disobey God in the Ten Commandments when they were being given and to build a golden calf and cause the people to bring sorrow and disaster on themselves. He was a failing priest. He needed the sacrifices as well. Christ never. Let me say this too. We're hearing so much these days in... Christian circles too, so I am told, that the Lord Jesus could have sinned, but didn't. One man said to me one time, there was no credit to him unless he could have sinned. He didn't sin, and therefore he could take that credit. That is blasphemy. The Lord Jesus Christ is a sinless man, always was since his incarnation, and he remains so. He was sinless. It's a holy priesthood. The Lord Jesus Christ never could sin. Neither can you and I sin in our new life. First epistle of John chapter 3 tells us that. We cannot sin. It's a holy priesthood, sinless position that we're in. Now you boys might be thinking, well, yes, that man must be very holy man he never sins, I'm saying that every believer in this audience who knows the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you have a nature now that cannot sin. You read that for yourself. You cannot sin. Now that's my new life, but that's the very life that Christ had. So when I quickly acknowledge, yes, the Lord Jesus couldn't have sinned, that's the life I have. Now, the responsibility comes in just like this man had to have a tender conscience as far as his approach to God and to have a good conscience of not having some sin on his conscience, even although it was an unwittingly done sin. Nevertheless, he should have that tender conscience. Oh, beloved ones, how important it is for you and for me to have a tender conscience before God. I don't address myself to the young boys and girls. I address myself as an older person. And each one of us here, do we know the Lord is our Savior? Oh, yes, we readily agree to that. Are we living in holiness before God? Or are we drifting back into the world? Letting the world creep in, whatever it might be, in our lives and our homes. Beloved ones, it's a holy life that we live. If you and I are going to live for the Lord's glory here on this earth, if we are going to know discernment as to what to separate from down here, and if we are going to know what the scriptures are teaching us, it is calling for a life of obedience and submission to the word of God. So, now the priest is you and me. We are the priest. The priest, I should say, the sinner, the one who had committed an offense, maybe put it that way. There was nothing outside here. These are belonging to the other model. We'll just consider this. There was nobody outside there, no priest saying to him, you better clean up yourself there. You're not very tidy. You're going in there with that sacrifice. Nobody laid any restrictions on him. The one requisite was the sacrifice. And if he came through there with that sacrifice... And it was offered on the altar. It was accepted. But when you and I have become a priest now, oh, the whole story changes. We're going to consider the priest. Here he is. And we will think of Aaron. Here he was, wearing his garments of glory and beauty. He had four boys originally. For we remember is the truth going out in all directions. For two boys didn't obey. They didn't obey. They brought strange fire. Instead of taking the coals from that brazen altar, they brought some strange fire. They came through that gate and they went in and they died. Both of them. Nadab and Abihu, the older two sons of Aaron, they died. Aaron has two sons left, two in the scriptures, two in the tabernacle. It all almost always brings before us the truth of the church, the Jew and the Gentile brought together. Two or three gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus and so on. Two almost always is referring to the church, the body of Christ. Aaron is a picture of Christ gone back to the glory you and I are pictured by the two sons of Aaron individually, not collectively in the church, but individual members of the body of Christ. So we're going to remember that we are like Aaron's sons. Now, Aaron, we're coming through here, and we have... Are we going to do some work of the... uh, in connection with the tabernacle? Let's read now in the... Thirtieth chapter of Exodus. What was required? Verse eighteen: Thou shalt also make a laver of brass. We live in partly French city, and this word is often used. Laver means to wash. Laver les mains means to wash your hands. The priest now is going to be approaching a new object. Only the priest is going to approach this. And this was called the laver. And it was made not of wood, but only of brass. Here it is on the enlarged model. No size given to it, but it was made out of brass, made from the looking glasses, incidentally, of the women who gathered wherever it was, outside the tabernacle and watched the proceedings and watched it being built and so on. And so they were asked... To surrender their looking glasses, vanity, we might say, or that which they would see themselves reflected in. This was to be used to make uh, this labor made out of all the looking glasses, tells us later on, 36 or 37th chapter. So we read on now in verse 18. Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle, here is the tabernacle, and the brazen altar. There is the altar. Here it is to go between the two. Very significant. And thou shalt put water therein. No blood now, just water. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet thereat when they go into the tabernacle, of the congregation they shall wash with water notice this that they die not. or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord so they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not second time and it shall be a statute for ever to them even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. Now, I'll pause there. Now, here comes a very grave restriction for the priest. If that priest had been receiving 50 times sacrifices during the day, 50 times he's washed his hands and his feet at that brazen altar with water, might look at his hands and feet and say, well, look, they're washed 50 times. Surely that's enough. And he says, I don't need to do it dead. It's gone. Now, I'm sure that right here in Los Angeles, they're teaching that you could lose your salvation if you fall away. A man told me one time, why, he said Satan fell away. He was an angel and there he fell away. If he could fall away, I can too. Well, we want to emphasize that, of course, it cannot be. The finished work of Christ saves you and me for eternity. And what about those sins that we may do, possibly inadvertently, possibly just carelessly? What about those sins? Can I come into the presence of the Lord Jesus on Lord's Day morning with unconfessed sins on my conscience? Yes, I can physically. But as a priest, I'm dead if I do. And I have done that. I have to confess Not moral sins, but careless worldly things allowed in my life, unconfessed to the Lord. Just going through the routine of it. Oh, beloved ones, we need to be stirred on these things. That priest would die. And so will you and I as a priest if there are things that we are allowing in our life, worldly things that we are going on with that are hindering our full enjoyment with the Lord day by day. I must confess those things to the Lord. First Corinthians eleven makes it very plain, does let a man examine himself and so let him eat, don't stay home. To examine ourselves, that's why on Saturday this is Saturday, isn't it, today so important for us to be in preparation today for what is ahead of us if we're left here tomorrow. Not to be up late Saturday night and yawning when we're coming into the meeting on Lord's Day and coming in late and carelessly dressed and so on. Oh, beloved ones, I'm not pointing a finger at anybody. I'm pointing a finger at myself. It is so important, the holy presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we going to come in carelessly? I often cite this. I read years ago of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. It doesn't mean much to you folks. Maybe a little bit more to Canadians, but a lot to the British. I read there at the coronation of the Queen that they sat in Westminster Hall and there wasn't one person ever heard to cough in two hours when the ceremony was going on. Who is she? She's nothing. She's just a a woman here on this earth. But I thought, oh, how, how careless we are when we are gathered by the Spirit of God into the presence of the Lord. Would we come in late? Certainly not. We'd be there 15 minutes before. They were there one hour before in that coronation. One hour before every seat was filled. What about the Lord's presence? Holy presence of the Lord. That labor is so vital for us as believers gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. No size to it. No blood connected with it. It was for the priest. And as the priest would approach to that labor, there he would see himself reflected in it because it had those reflective qualities. And there he would see himself. When you and I, beloved ones, are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood has been settled set on us once. But now we need the washing of the water by the word. Let's turn to the verse in Ephesians 5, verse 26. That he might sanctify, that's the Lord Jesus, that's his present work. Verse 25 is the finished work on the cross. 25 is like the brazen altar. 26 is like the laver. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now there it is, plain. I need, I don't need need to get saved when I have offended against a holy God. I need to come to that labor. I need to come to the word of God. And when I come to the word of God, what do I see myself? What do I see but myself? My inadequacies, the things that I am allowing, careless things in my life. Oh, as I think it was one of the fathers, the early fathers said, this book will keep me from sin or sin will keep me from this book. You dear young ones here, are you getting into the habit of reading this word for yourself? Not only young ones, each one of us. Has, is this word read by us individually? We take our breakfast, but what about feeding on this precious word for ourself? Nice to have our parents read the scriptures, but oh, how important it is for you and me each day to be reading the Word of God. When I was younger man, I got into the habit years and years ago of never going out of my bedroom until I read a chapter regardless of who was waiting for me. And it got, I got into such a habit that at night, the last thing I would do it would be to get my Bible beside my bed and my glasses beside the, the Bible so that I couldn't say, well, they're way over on the other side of the room, uh, I'll uh, read later on. It is so important for you and for me to remember that labor, the reading of the word, the keeping of us clean so that we are going to be living for his glory, so that we're going to be discerning his mind, and so that we're going to know how to live in this, uh, this awful world. Just water in it. Pain of death. They died. Incidentally, just in passing, The laver was in the wilderness, it was small, no doubt it would be able to pass through the the posts of that outside gate. But when they arrived in the land and the tabernacle was no longer used and they built the temple, it tells us that the laver there was a sea, it was big. So big that 12 animals made out of brass were all underneath it and this great big bath was set up on top. A picture of the millennium when we won't when persons won't need to be saved, but when there is going to be righteousness reigning on this earth and there is going to be so much of that constant clean keeping clean before the Lord. Everyone is going to have to obey in that millennium. We won't be here. But the millennium is a picture of the Perfect reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that was a large labor in connection with the temple. But then when you go into Revelation and you look into the eternal state, a wonderful thing is seen there. And that is that that labor has become solidified and it is a sea of glass. When we get to glory, no need of that labor anymore. But it's going to be a constant reminder of that day when those two things, the blood and the water, were needed. The epistle of John says, not by water only, but by water and blood. When Adams, at least when the human race went on in the early years, gradually got into worse sin, in the sixth chapter of Genesis it tells us that the thoughts of the imaginations Of the mind of men were only evil continually. God washed the water, washed the world with water, but it didn't cure it. They came out of that ark, and the first man, uh, Noah, why he he gets drunk. That water wouldn't cleanse the world. The blood of Jesus Christ alone is able to do that. Just think of that—that the blood of Christ is able to forever. Wash away the sins of three and a half billion people that are on the world in the world today. three and a half billion. It's able to, as we often say, it's able to save the sins of the man that shed that blood. Just think of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is what the brazen altar is a picture of, and so is the word of God just a secondary thing. It tells us in Romans chapter 5, much more being justified by his blood, we shall be saved by his life. Blessed Lord Jesus in the glory today. What is he doing there? Waiting? No, he is that labor, washing you and me day by day through his precious word. May there be, beloved ones, That necessary tender conscience as we go on through this corrupt now and dark world, the constant coming to the word and washing, keeping clean so that we're going to be living for his glory, so that we're going to be discerning his mind and we will know what to separate from down here.